Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Positive Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for episode four of our Bride of Monster Bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1976's Carrie, as well as Oculus from 2013. These are our telekinetic and cursed object movies, respectively. Mm-hmm. This is also kind of the redhead showdown. Although, Carrie is strawberry blonde at best. Yeah, as someone who has blonde on their driver's license but gets called a redhead all the time, I I don't know. I feel for her. I feel like that's how we can bond. She's definitely more blonde, and then the prom happens. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay. Pig's blood is not a hair color. (laughs) Yet. Sorry, spoilers for Carrie. Uh, But speaking of spoilers for Carrie, what all happens? Well, first we should probably get into some trigger warnings. Oh, yeah. So for Carrie, trigger warnings for, like, uncomfortable nudity Mm -hmm. and blood. Yeah. And for Oculus, yeah, some gore and... I'd say both these movies have a parental abuse component. Yes. In Oculus, it is more complicated than that, but I think that is a... If that's going to be a thing that's triggering, you might as well stay away from this one in general. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead and get into Carrie. Carrie White is an outsider of her class. She's a mousy girl... All of her classmates dislike her, in part because her mother is a religious fanatic. When she gets her first period just after P.E. in the shower and doesn't know what's going on, the bullying that she experiences intensifies, causing the gym teacher to have to step in and defend her. Carrie goes home and is excused from the class for the next week, whereas the gym teacher, Miss Collins, confronts all of her bullies and threatens them with revoking their prom tickets should they continue to bully Carrie. Two of her classmates take this in very different directions. One, Sue, decides to try and include Carrie and asks her boyfriend to take her to the prom. The other, Chris, frustrated that she has to deal with the detention, skips out, gets banned from prom, and then seeks revenge on Carrie along with her boyfriend, Billy. These plots slow burn until... At the prom, the ballot box is stuffed so that Carrie ends up winning prom queen, and Chris and Billy pour a giant bucket of pig's blood over her, causing Carrie's latent telekinetic powers to manifest violently, killing many people within the gym and setting it on fire. Chris and Billy escape and try and run Carrie with the car, and she once again blows them away with telekinesis, and the car explodes. Carrie returns home, scrubs the blood off, and is confronted by her mother, who then attempts to kill her, seeing as she views her as spawn of the devil. Carrie then retaliates, and overcome with anger and grief, the house implodes and falls upon them. So, classic movie, a big defining one, lots of people kind of know about the whole Carrie the Prom thing, and that's about all, because that's the most interesting thing in this movie. This is the oldest film on our bracket, it's from 1976. It's definitely showing its age with how it's structured. Also, I will go ahead and uh, tell listeners right now that not quite an adaptation, but definitely an inspired by show on Netflix called I Am Not Okay With This is going to come up frequently in our discussion, and we are not going to be avoiding spoilers. So if you have not watched it and would like to avoid spoilers, bow out now and come back after you've watched it. It's like eight episodes. Mm-hmm. It is very much what if Carrie, but with the kids from It and also gay. It's, it's really good. It did not get renewed for second season and I'm not okay with this. I mean, to be fair, it's because of COVID. Less than, like it got renewed and then it got canceled because they couldn't film. Yeah. Maybe it will come back. We can only hope. Mm-hmm. So why don't we go ahead and start off the way this film does. 
and talk about the very uncomfortable male gaze. Boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. There's a lot of teenage girl characters who are just boobs out everywhere in this movie. Yeah. Played by adult actors, but that doesn't make it not icky to how the camera just like luxuriates over their bodies. Yeah. One of the first scenes of the film is Carrie showering, and the way the camera lingers on her, it's like softcore porn. Mm -hmm. It's really uncomfortable. It can be very difficult to tell a story about a person coming into an understanding of their sexuality and their body in a way that isn't... um, Exploitative? Exploitative, yeah. And this movie does not achieve that. Mm -hmm. I think it also is made worse by these being ostensibly teenagers. Carrie, I assume, was like... 14 or something i don't know like she's super young which makes it like i am not okay with this yeah it's not just that scene it kind of occurs again throughout i will say there is a scene that distinctly has a male gaze but i didn't have a problem with it's when chris and billy are driving and the camera kind of turns to look at chris and ogle her but it's very clear through context that that's Billy's point of view. The camera stays just long enough for us to understand what's going on, and then it cuts away. Mm-hmm. And I think that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Also, she's fully clothed at that point, and so it's less weird to me. Yeah. Although the uh, the blowjob scene that happens a little bit later is weird. Yeah. She's, like, talking about how much she hates Carrie White while also, like, doing the sex on him. Billy. <sighs> Billy, I hate Carrie White. Who? That's not how mouths work. <laughs> yeah. The best I've got is that she has a little cassette player. <laughs> She's like playing her rant on how much she hates Carrie White, like just off screen while also doing a blowjob. I don't. I mean, I, I was thinking that she was just really into ventriloquism. That. <laughs> I guess you'll blow your voice trick. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It also kind of plays into this whole like, man, teenagers are awful thing this movie has going on. Yeah, this film, it has no characters who feel like good people or even redeemable. Sue Snell, who is the classmate who decides to try to get Carrie to go to the prom with her boyfriend, seems like she's trying, but while her actions are ostensibly good-ish, the movie doesn't do a lot to like make us actually like her as a person. Also, it's not very clear from just watching the film that Sue is actually attempting to be nice to Carrie. While I was watching it, I was pretty sure that Sue was getting Carrie to the prom and then Chris was doing the pig's blood stuff and they were coordinating, but that was apparently not the case. Mm-hmm. And that's what I assumed too. Like I came with surprise when we were like, oh, she doesn't know. Okay. We had to like pause the film and like talk for about five minutes. Like, wait, what the hell's going on? Wait, is this actually happening? It's a big problem when important point like that gets buried in your film. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is that Sue seems like she feels bad for Carrie, but also doesn't make any attempts to like make actual recompense with her. She doesn't talk to her or befriend her or be like, hey, let's go out for malt liquors or whatever they ate in the 60s, yeah. 80s, 70s. I know when we are. <laughs> it's definitely the 70s. Do they have malt liquors? Is that a thing? Malt drinks? Okay, are you talking about malt liquor, or are you talking about, like, malt shops, like a soda fountain? Uh, soda fountains. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they, like, they still had those in the 70s, not as prominently as they used to in, like, the 40s and 50s. Sure. Whatever the youths do, let's go out and go on a Pokemon Snap and set our dicks on fire, you know. 
And part of that comes from this film just having it out for just teens in general. Mm -hmm. All of the teens in this film are just so over-the-top mean. Mm -hmm. And it's not like in a... Like, intentional way, it doesn't feel hyper-real like something like Mean Girls does. Mm -hmm. And that's fine because everything is so over the top that we can tell right away that it's meant to be silly. Mm -hmm. The thing that sets it off is that in that opening scene where Carrie has her period and all the kids are throwing tampons at her, it's all the girls being equally nasty. It's not like one or two who are doing the thing and then the rest are like laughing or being egged on. It's all of them all at once, like this coordinated... Yeah. Jerk squad. We don't even get shots of girls like turning away and trying not to notice and like draw attention to themselves because yeah. they're like, well, at least it's Carrie and not me. Right. It feels unbelievable to me that there would be this like unilaterally mean group. And admittedly, maybe if this is your high school experience, I'm really sorry. But like, I know that mine had a variety of people who were from mean to neutral on things mm -hmm. as well as friendly. Like, I get Carrie not having friends at first. That's totally fine. Yeah. She's kind of a weird withdrawn kid, but... It seems way nastier than makes sense, mm -hmm. and it sets the whole tone of the movie as being just kind of a nasty universe. Mm -hmm. You too, Chris. And spit out that gum. Where'll I put it, Miss Collins? You can choke on it for all I care. Just get it out of your mouth. Wipe that smirk off your face, Norma. Now I want you all to know that you did a really shitty thing yesterday. A really shitty thing. <laughs> makes little sense that everyone in the class would be antagonistic and there wouldn't be anyone who'd just be apathetic and not give a shit. Mm -hmm. And the shitty characters also propagates up to the teachers and Carrie's mother. The gym, gym teacher just straight up slaps children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's wild that that's like a thing that they're like, this is real because of the 70s. You can get away with that. Yeah. You can just do that. Carrie's mother, very abusive, very fanatical Christian, and shoves Carrie into a prayer closet when she has her first period because she thinks that, you know, she has sinned and she's unclean. Oh, Lord! Help the sinning woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. And here's the thing about that. Those kind of people... Exists, but it's not like unreal, but because the rest of the world is also shitty, it feels less bad by compare. I'm mean, not like less bad than her classmates, but like the amount of bad that it is feels diminished because the rest of the world is also pretty awful. It's not like she has an awful mom yeah. and the world is whatever. It's like the world is awful and her mom is particularly bad. There's less contrast because we don't have any like good people. There, we don't have the contrast of black and white, we only have the contrast of black and gray. Uh huh. Honestly, probably the least objectionable person besides Sue's mom, who gets like a couple lines in the film, one of which is great. She's talking with Carrie's mom, who weaseled her way in to evangelize her. Uh, and Carrie's mom says, These are godless times, Mrs. Neal. I'll drink to that. It is 1 p.m., ma'am. Are you okay? <laughs> it's the 70s. It's fine. That's fine. <laughs> But yeah, there's also, like, the principal, whose biggest thing is he can't remember Carrie's name at all, even though he's reminded of it multiple times in their meeting, mm -hmm. and is unwilling to confront Carrie's mom, because how the hell does this 16-year-old girl not know what a period is? Mm -hmm. You know what would have worked really well for that scene is if he was re repeatedly using the wrong pronouns for her? That would be totally fine. That would actually be a great take for it. But no, he just keeps calling her Callie? Kelly? Actually, like, corrected... 
three or four times in the last sentence. He can get it wrong one time and be corrected, and to show that he's a he's a bad dude after that, it becomes unrealistic. Yeah. It's, it becomes bad writing. Even with Mrs. Collins, who is in Carrie's corner and trying to make things better for her, the antagonistic way in which she acts towards the other students does not ingratiate herself with the audience. And it makes it feel less like she's doing this for Carrie because of it's right, and more so she's doing this for Carrie because she has a bone to pick because she had a bad high school experience. Yeah, I get that vibe. It- and also the way she talks to Carrie kind of has this, like, unhealthy teacher-student relationship. I mean, like, I get that these things are complicated. Sometimes teachers need to be more actively involved in a student's life than is, you know, like, normal or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it definitely feels like there are boundaries that are being crossed there. Mm-hmm. I'm also not a fan of her being, like... Look at your eyes. A little mascara to bring it out. Little. Your lips. Try some lipstick. You have nice, pretty lips and your cheekbones. I don't know if that's quite the right thing here, but also, I mean, it seems to work for Carrie, so I guess she was right. Mm-hmm. I know that if a teacher had just told me to wear some mascara as a kid, I would have been a lot happier, so I guess <laughs> I guess Miss Collins was right all along. Also, you know who's right all along? Her mom. Carrie's mom? Yeah. It's weird, but, like, she has this whole thing about, like, no, Carrie, don't go to the prom. All the kids will laugh at you. He's gonna laugh at you. They're all gonna laugh at you. Laugh at you. Look, it's not too late. You can stay here with me. I don't want to stay with you, Mama. She's right, and it goes badly. Yeah, I have a headcanon where part of her fanaticism is because Carrie's mom has precognition. Mm-hmm. And so she has these oracular visions. She feels that this power is ungodly, and that's why she has this huge issue with herself and pushes that on Carrie. Mm-hmm. But there's not necessarily anything in the film to make that canon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that would be a great way to take it if you wanted to do like a retelling of this. We talked a lot about how we would do a retelling, uh, which is honestly where I'm not okay with this comes in. Because I am not okay with this fixes a lot of the problems that we have with Carrie. Probably our biggest problem with the film is that the 1976 film doesn't really understand the tragedy of Carrie White. She's Not really a protagonist. She's honestly not in the film all that much. While she learns about herself, her character shift from meet kid to I'm telekinetic, fuck you, mom, happens almost off screen. She's arrived at that point after the other kids in her class have some scenes and it doesn't feel real. Mm -hmm. Whereas the main character in uh, I Am Not Okay With This, it's a miniseries, so we have a little bit longer to explore what's going on. Pretty much everything is told from her perspective. We don't move away to see what's going on with other people all that much. Mm-hmm. We're talking about remaking this, and this movie has been remade several times. Like, so it's you know, based on a book by Stephen King. And then we have like the remake movie, the, the remake TV movie, the musical, I'm Not Okay With This. Probably a few other things we haven't heard of in the intervening time that are like not as obvious. I guess Firestarter, throw that in there too. They're a direct sequel to this from, I think, 1999. Mm-hmm. That needs to exist. Like, this is definitely not necessarily a problem with the 76 version, but a update that makes more sense in the modern day is rather than having this period uncleanliness kind of being this metaphor for monstrousness, it would make a a lot more sense for Carrie Analog to be queer and kind of coming to terms with that and figuring out where they fit in a world that doesn't really welcome them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, again, is something that I, I'm i not okay with this does incredibly well. 
I'm also really excited for the Crash remake that is dropping probably in a week or two from when you're hearing this, where from the trailer it also starts with the main character having a period, and instead of being teased, uh, it's just a group of witches take her in to like help her process that. I'm like, cool, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. We're ragging on this a lot. I do want to say that once the, the fun and games start where she's burning down the gym, it's a really exciting scene. Like There's a lot of really good effects, a lot of fun screaming. Sissy SpaceX like, acting hard is really good. Mm-hmm. There's also like some interesting decisions that they've made. They've split the screen in two and are showing two different perspectives at the same time. Honestly, like if you were playing a co-op video game sort mm-hmm. of thing. And it's interesting. I wish they would have done that more earlier in the film. Because there's a number of shots where they do that terrible thing where they composite a shot where on one side of the screen, someone's very close to the camera in the foreground and in focus. And then on the other side, there's someone in the background who's also in focus and it never looks good. Please stop trying to make that shot work. Whereas if you just would have split the camera and had that throughout the entire film, I think that would have been more successful. Mm -hmm. Especially if you made that a thing when Carrie's using her powers and to kind of show that her like mind is expanding or something. Mm-hmm. The effects when the climax hits are great. It's such a drastic turn and the way that every part of the film reinforces that with the change in music, with the change in pace, because we have this like really slow build up to the blood falling and then everything picks back up again. The color palette completely changes. We get those interesting split screen effects. Mm-hmm. And there's a great shot where the gym burning mm-hmm. down, the doors opening, Carrie just slowly walking out and the doors closing behind her. It's like, mm, beautiful. Yeah. Also, Tommy Ross is the first person to die in this movie when the buster just hits him in the head and he's canon dead now, which mm-hmm. is wild to me. This movie has a lot of problems, but I understand why people love that climax. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's honestly really all that this film has going for it. The middle of this film is like a mess. Mm -hmm. I get that probably during this time, it was probably reasonably transgressive to be dealing so directly and openly with like women's issues and stuff. But society has moved on. (laughs) At least a little bit, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, like stop taxing period products. Yes, you're gods. Also make them available via things like Snap and Tanf. Mm-hmm. <sighs> One last weird thing. There's this weird cutaway we get to Carrie's mom in the kitchen. And she's just like chopping carrots. Mm-hmm. And we get that for like 30 seconds. And it doesn't really do anything. I mean, I guess it introduces the knife that she's going to use to stab, stab Carrie later. But there's nothing else that's happening in that scene. It's so superfluous. Mm-hmm. I think it's to remind us that her mom is not doing well. Her mom is like, I'm not okay with this. But <laughs> drink. Yeah, I think that there's probably more you could have done with that scene. Like maybe she's like praying or something. Or she's like praying and she like has a breakdown or whatever. Yeah. Speaking of having a breakdown, uh, let's talk about Oculus. So, about half of the movie, you turned to me and went, you get to write the summary for this one, and that's because you're a bastard. You also suggested it for the bracket, so... You're right, it is my fault. So this movie takes place in both the present and the past, kind of like interweaving narratives. So I have written down the things that happen in the present on one side of the page, things that happen on the, on the past on the other side of the page, and I'm going to read straight across for the whole thing. We're going to see if it works, if not, I'm going to re-record this. So, in the present, adult Tim has processed his guilt about killing his dad and his, as a child and is released from his facility, picked up by his sister, Kaylee. She's a bit busy. She found the mirror that their dad, as kids, Tim and Kaylee, move into a new house, bought when they moved into the house that drove him to with their parents. Dad bought violent delusions. Kaylee wants to a fancy mirror for his office. Prove it's haunted. That turns out to be haunted. It kill it. Slowly kills the plant, the dog, the... She has a variety of well-thought-out 
parents' marriage, and ultimately plans to prove the mirror's influence, but drives the mother and father to her brother has spent years coming to terms violent madness with it all being in their heads. To save his sister, Tim threatens his as the night goes on and past and present dad with a gun, but cannot start breaking down, and our understanding pull the trigger, so his dad pulls the trigger for him, of what's real and what's fake is called into question. Tim's taken away by the police. Ready for it all to be over, Tim throws the switch that activates the pendulum to kill the mirror, only to realize his sister was standing in front of it. She dies, and the police take him away screaming. And that's what's like watching this movie. Honestly, yes. <laughs> if that was very unclear to you, haunted mirror trying to prove that it's haunted, it goes badly, everybody die. Structurally, this is a haunted house film. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing that's going on is going back and forth between the past and present. The film does it incredibly well for the most part. There's always some connection point between the shift from past to present. For the most part, as we get in towards the climax of the film, things start breaking down a bit more, and it's much more difficult to tell when and where we are. But that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it doesn't quite execute on it well enough for it to be entirely intentional. So, But the modern house has these fluorescent lights that make it a little bit more blue. The past house has more of a like yellowish tint. So it's pretty easy to tell when you are in general until the lights go out. Mm-hmm. Which, that works. And this movie stars motherfucking Karen Gillian. Yep. You might know her from Doctor Who, where she played Amy Pond, or playing Ronda Rousey in the Jumanji movies. Or Nebula from the MCU, yeah. <laughs> if you're normal. <laughs> and then her brother, Tim, is played by that guy who played the fuck Batman, Robin. Brendan Thwaites. Brendan Thwaites. In the past, their parents are played by Katie Sackhoff. Who you might recognize from Battlestar Galactica, or recently The Flash, or if you're broken and dead on the inside like me from Haunting Connecticut 2 Goes to Georgia. <laughs> And their father is played by Rory Cochran. Who I don't know. I do. He was uh, Detective Speedle in CSI Miami for a number of seasons and my favorite character. And I still have a lot of feelings about them killing him off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh So it was nice to see him here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good cast, but it's a cast who aren't like super big actors. At least at the time, yeah. yeah. Karen Gillian has gone on to bigger and better things. And Mm. I guess you could even argue that for Brendan Thwaites a little bit. Are we calling Titans a better thing than Oculus? <laughs> no, I'm saying that Titans is a much more mainstream thing than Oculus. That's fair. <laughs> I think I really like about this is that Karen Gillan gets to be this incredibly driven, ruthless, callous character. Mm-hmm. And you almost never see a woman getting to have that role as a protagonist. If she has that perspective, she's usually to offset the like nicer, softer, like correct woman mm-hmm. that, we have, that we're following. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the character is super compelling. She has this all thought out. She's been thinking about this for 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. And the movie lays out how she is just as broken as her brother is, but um, where he kind of became a mess. She rebuilt herself into this very spiky form. Like, so she's hyper competent. She's hyper competent, but still has a lot to work through. So no one rebought the house after the parents died. It just stayed in a trust for a while until she turned 18 and she inherited it so she's been living in the house where her parents died in front of her for the last five to ten years like all through college and her career as an auctioneer you know the term auction auction house worker she works with antiques like her mother did because mm-hmm. she's trying to track down the mirror and, and like she's been laser focused on this for a while mm-hmm. so the first act is kind of all of the setup for how we came to be here mm-hmm as we get into the second act is when Kaylee and Tim are at the house and about to start the experiment. And 
from then on until the exact halfway point through the movie, you have the two of them arguing about how things went in the past and what is actually going on. And the film does this amazing job of playing with who is the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Is it Tim who seems much more stable after getting out of his psychiatric treatment? Or is it Kaylee who never had to go and feels very competent and is very sure of herself? And Tim brings up a lot of very valid points about the way that the human mind works and how memory can be altered over time and by misunderstandings of things in ways that make it totally believable that none of this is real and they're just very traumatized kids. Our brains actually encode information as fuzzy traces, more like a general meaning than an exact record. This is horseshit, Tim. And adults are more likely to combine those traces into false memories. Okay, what's more likely? That you're misremembering events from 11 years ago? Or that the mirror eats dogs? And then pretty much the exact halfway point through the film, we get proof that the mirror is fucking with them. Uh It's such a good reveal. It is timed perfectly. The thing happened and I paused. I'm like, okay. We should be right around the halfway point of the film, and sure enough, almost dead center. It's like exactly 49 away or something <laughs> of an like, hour and 50 movie. Yeah. Speaking of great timing, you turned to me and said, are we going to get an explanation of what she's doing here? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then like two minutes later, Kaylee just starts laying out her whole plan. Yeah. There's no must, no fuss. She just starts explaining it directly to the audience. We don't spend most time in the past for that part. It's just, yeah. here's what I want to do. I'm going to, I have all these cameras. I have all these thermometers. I have all these plans laid out. Here's how we're going to prove the mirror to the thing. Here's the history. Yeah, and it all makes sense in the context of the f- film that she's just laying all of this out because she is getting it on video for posterity to prove that... The purpose of today's experiment is to prove that the object behind me, the lesser glass, is home to an observable, predictable, supernatural force. There's no scientific equivalent for the word haunted, so we'll just say this object is responsible for at least 45 deaths in the four centuries of its recorded existence. So this movie is kind of in that, like, the haunted house genre that we're doing a lot of lately. Like, you asked if it was part of the Conjuring Cinematic Universe. It's not, but it easily could be. It has a very similar, like, visual style and feel. Mm-hmm. But in those movies, I always want someone to, like, bring the real world into those movies that have to follow certain rules because otherwise you don't have a movie. And so... Her having all these cameras, all these thermometers, having this very like scientific method for this is really fun. Like, that's, that's my jam. Yeah, it's really great. We have this kind of struggle between uh, science and the supernatural. It scratches that same sort of itch that Ghostbusters does, mm-hmm. just in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Or um, Flatliners. Mm-hmm. I will say the one thing that the film does run into that is just an inherent problem with haunted house films is... The why don't you just leave? Mm-hmm. As things start ramping up, it makes more sense because they can't really trust where they're at anymore because of how the mirror affects them. But through most of the second act, as things are, are beginning to ramp up, it's just like, you, you can just leave. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the problem with the second half of the movie, roughly, that the present characters don't really have quite enough to do. They're sort of running around the house being scared and not being sure what's happening. And because they don't really have a very specific concrete goal to work towards, even like leaving the house isn't that clear. And the mind screw makes it hard to tell where they're at anyway. You can't really tell how much success or failure they're having. So it's kind of a not very satisfying narrative flow. For yeah, that. there's no way to measure 
progress, really. Yeah. Whereas the front half of the film is perfectly paced. Mm -hmm. That breaks down in the third act, and the only sort of inkling that you have to where the film's going and how close you are to the climax is what's going on in the past segments, because you know that's going to end with the death of their mother and father. Mm Mm-hmm. We get a lot of that, but a lot of it isn't necessarily like new information. It's just finding out how it happened. And I think that we should have been learning new things in those scenes. At the end, we do learn that it wasn't Tim just shooting his dad. It was his dad grabbing the gun that Tim was holding and pushing the trigger, uh, which does complicate that narrative a little bit. But that comes at the end. It's not like that happens and we have to process that. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I saw trailers for this, so I went in knowing that at one point, Karen Gillan grabs an apple and bites into it and realizes it's a light bulb because the mirror is messing with her. And I'm sad that I spoiled for that because, oh god, that's horrible. It is so horrible, and the film foreshadows it so well. Like It shows you all the ways in which the mirror is able to alter the perceptions of the people around it. And all the lights are going out, so Kaylee and Tim are separated and they are replacing the light bulbs. But they also have a timer to let them know when to eat. And Kaylee packed a bunch of apples because they they store well and they're easy to just grab and eat. Mm -hmm. And so the camera shows you her setting down the apple apple next to the light bulb, uh, the one that she just took out, replacing it, grabbing it, and then from behind she takes a bite. And then all of a sudden we flip to around and her mouth is just gushing blood and you see the broken light bulb in her hands and she's just kind of sitting there like how did this happen how could the mirror affect me from this far away how did i not notice it and then tim comes and you realize no the mirror was making her perceived as if she ate the light bulb she actually did eat the apple mm-hmm. and it, it's such a good scene that shows you just how how much you can't trust Pretty much anything the film shows you after that. Mm-hmm. Although, honestly, I think the better fix for that, to solve some of the problems we had with the second half of the movie, if it actually was the light bulb, if she actually was bleeding, and now part of the movie is them trying to, like, get her, you know, first aid stuff with Tim not knowing where to go because he hasn't been to this house for 10 years and having to deal with, like, the visions and stuff from that. I think that would have been a way to give them something to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we needed a more concrete achievable goal mm-hmm. than just prove the mirror is haunted. So one thing I really love about this, towards the end of the film, Dad, who is fully possessed by the mirror at this point, tells Kaylee of that- Not what your problem is, is you don't listen! Which I really like because that is both her problem but also her strength, which I think is a really cool character trait. Well, in the history of the mirror, all the people it's killed before, people who have tried to fight it, I'd say Kaylee probably gets closer than anybody else does to stopping the thing. Like, it has to fight tooth and nail to save itself and only barely manages it. Mm-hmm. And so I like that Kaylee's refusal to listen extends even to, like, things like supernatural forces. That makes her this incredibly compelling character that, like, I really want to see win, and I'm bummed that she doesn't. Yeah, this film kind of highlights my problems with a lot of modern horror films. It's not so much that I am not into the more cerebral, thinky, less schlocky type of horror. I do prefer just being able to laugh at ridiculous gore. But I really enjoyed this up until the ending. Things just got a little bit too difficult to parse because I just couldn't make out when we were, what was going on. Again, that's intentional with the film, and I think it just, they ratcheted that up a little too much. But also... The protagonists don't get a win. The mirror wins. Sure, it's a good setup for a sequel, but there are so many ways that you can set up a sequel or even a prequel. Like, we've set up 
a bunch of different films that you can do with other victims. Mm-hmm. And that kind of should be really fun. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that you have an object that makes people go mad and they're all in a house doing that and your mess with perception works in basically any time period. Yep. And in general, budgets are pretty small. I mean, for the period pieces, you're going to have to spend a little bit more on costuming. Mm-hmm. But Oculus was only $5 million. It pretty much made back its budget in its first day in theaters. Mm-hmm. It cost about what Hunting Connecticut 2 Ghost of Georgia brought in in theaters, mm-hmm. which is not that much. It's the cost of one Game of Thrones episode. Mm-hmm. I can be okay with like downer endings, but this one doesn't really feel earned. The mirror feels kind of OP. Like I feel like there should have been some fatal flaw or some mistake they made, and there that isn't really there. It's just that the mirror is able to completely affect everything that they perceive. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been interesting to imply that some of the footage might have been enough. So see the police or whatever gathering up the tapes and leave it unclear whether or not that's going to exonerate them. Yeah, or like having a scene where Tim's being interrogated and he tells them to look at the tapes and then we, we see them and someone's like, we need to look into this further sort mm-hmm. of thing. There was almost a way that they could level the playing film and the film does show it a little bit because we get the scene where Kaylee's fiance comes to check on her at the house, Mm -hmm. but she perceives that she's getting attacked and unfortunately uh, unintentionally kills him. And then she gets a like check-in phone call from her fiance. And so she doesn't know what is real and she checks the body with her phone camera to see if it's there and it is. And I guess that's enough proof for her and i think having it so that the the mirror is not able to mess with the perception of cameras and other electronics and incorporating that more into them attempting to beat it would have worked Mm -hmm. one of the last shots is tim looking into the window and seeing their parents and kaylee's ghosts haunted by the mirror or whatever in the window gazing out at him with these haunted eyes her fiance's not in there Hmm. which is interesting to me yeah i mean admittedly maybe he like wasn't around long enough for the mirror to, like, capture his soul or whatever, but I know he could still be out there. Mm -hmm. And, like, that kind of ambiguity is fun to me. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with some of the ambiguity that the film provides. I'm, for the most part, I'm totally fine with the messing with the perceptions and just kind of the mind fuckery that this film does. For the most part, it's not really scary. It's just disturbing, and there's this sense of unease because you can't really trust anything. Mm -hmm. I think that works really well for what this film was trying to do. But the film starts off so strong, and then I think it just overdoes it at the end, and it doesn't all quite come together. Yeah. But I think we're kind of in a bit of a, a loop with that. I think that means it's probably time to move on to our end segments. Final Girl, Best Girl. Yeah. Who most successfully defeats the monster in their movie? I mean, gotta go with Carrie. Although, there's this weird thing, because Carrie is kind of the monster. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could think of Sue as the protagonist and surviving Carrie as winning. Sure, I'll allow it. Yeah. But I think either way, whoever from Carrie we choose, it's going to have to be that film because it's a much less downer ending than Oculus is. Yeah. Kaylee put in a really good, hard fight, and unfortunately in the end it just wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. Whereas the characters in Carrie put in a token effort, (laughs) and a few of them made it out by not being there. Mm -hmm. They took the Darwin approach to fighting the Hulk. (laughs) Uh, yep. That's for all you very nerdy people out there. <laughs> and, f- and for those who are not, Darwin is an X-Men who has different powers based on what will help him survive a scenario. They're fighting the Hulk. He's like, yeah, I want to let me fight the Hulk. He runs and just vanishes and it reappears in Hawaii. And they're like, oh, the best way to fight the Hulk is to not be here. 
Which is one of the reasons that it's so frustrating that he's killed off in X-Men First Class, because he literally shouldn't be able to do it. Some utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. Yeah, worst part of that about that film. Otherwise, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to the topic at hand. Yeah. What's moving on this week? I think Oculus is stronger. I mean, we got some problems with how it ends, but overall, it's a very strong movie. Oh, yeah, 80% of that film, I was enthralled. It's so good. It honestly makes me want to check out more of Mike Flanagan's work. He wrote and directed The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, as well as its upcoming sequel, uh, Haunting of Bly Manor. Mm-hmm. Which actually, I think, is out now. It came out the same time this episode comes out. Oh! That exact day. Perfect. We planned this perfectly. <laughs> I love it when a plan comes together. Honestly, if you've watched Oculus and have not watched Haunting of Hill House, I don't know how that happened but it is all the good of oculus and none of the bad mm-hmm. i'm also really interested to see the short film that inspired oculus that is pretty much the same premise but like in 30 minutes and it, it's very low budget it's one actor one room sure i am also voting for oculus to move forward i see why people enjoy carrie but i think that overall it is not aged well it's just not very strong outside of its climax mm-hmm. i think people keep trying to remake it People are trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. I've not seen the 2013 version. I'll probably check that out at some point because I'm interested to see how they interpret things. Mm-hmm. But I'm not okay with this. is fucking fantastic and I enjoyed the crap out of it. Yeah, so really, I'm not okay with this is the winner for this episode. Yes. <laughs> really, Netflix's viewing numbers. Like, we have recommended so many things on that platform to go watch. Mm-hmm. So that ends round one of Bride of Monster Bracket. Thanks for joining us for that. If you want to come back to round two, where we'll talk about Colossal versus Drag Me to Hell, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Uh, should also mention that because this is our Halloween bracket, in round two, we are going to be incorporating classic films that feature the same premise or same monster. So pairing with Colossal and Drag Me to Hell, we will also be watching Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, as well as Tormented. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman may be a little bit more difficult to find. However, Tormented is uh, in the public domain, so you can just find that on YouTube and watch it. Which is pretty cool. Uh, I love public domain stuff. I'm glad that things enter the public domain when they should, and there are no megacorps to prevent that from happening. (laughs) And while we're here, I'll go ahead and announce the two classic films that will be incorporated for Us versus Oculus. They will be Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Naturally. And The Haunting. Based on The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. The same book that the Netflix series is based off of. And the Catherine Zeta-Jones movie is based on. And Stephen King's Rose Red is shamelessly ripped off of. <laughs> Sorry, this is the shitting on the Stephen King episode. <sighs> like... No, no we, we, can, we can't dig into it, it's fine. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next week. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks, Thanks for, for tuning, tuning in. in.